Thank you, Doug. It's a privilege to uh, be here today. I, I'm, I'm not sure what to do with that kind of veiled compliment that Doug gave me. I will say this, that, uh, you know, when I first came to Parkview, uh, it's been, it'll be 14 years in January, that I really enjoyed my time with Doug. We had a bunch of young guys, and Nevin Sutterth was our exec pastor at that time, and he said, would you mind taking some uh, oversight leadership with some of our guys who are less experienced in the ministry and uh, that would have, you know, Doug Schillinger had just left the church. Uh, we only overlapped six months back in those days. So that was Niall and Eric Pryor and Doug and I don't know who else was there. But my fond memories of these guys, besides the great jobs they were doing, was the going to lunch with them. And uh, we would go to, and what comes to my mind is the Vine over on 2nd Street. And uh, on Mondays, they had all-you-could-eat wings or something like that. And these guys would, and this includes Doug, would have these all-you-can-eat contests. I couldn't believe it, what they were putting down, you know. It's like, Doug is perpetually skinny. If I ate a fourth of what he ate... I would be even larger than I am. And so I just sat back and watched these guys devour food. I think Colin, if he sees here this morning, was even a cook back there at the Vine. Uh, and he kind of loaded us up. And so we used to have some really great times. Um, I won't say there wasn't some illnesses when we got back to the church. Uh, I remember Niall having to down cups of oatmeal just to get through the afternoon to balance out all of the acidity from the hot wings and so forth, but uh, I love Doug. Doug uh, brought an innocence and a freshness to the ministry. Um, always had a heart for people, and you know that as your pastor. He loves people, and he loves this community. Now, I'm an east sider. You know, I only live about four blocks that direction, and so the East Campus, Faith Academy, it's always in my view. Drive by it almost every day, pray for it, all the time. My oldest daughter taught at Faith Academy. I own helped her in her classroom. Um, you guys are on my heart uh, always, and I'm so thrilled when I get to come in here. This is the first time that I get to preach in the new room, and you know it's pretty exciting to see what you guys have done. So God bless you guys. Uh, hope that we have a great time this morning in the Word. Uh, let's turn to Genesis. As Doug mentioned, we've been walking through Genesis, and this morning we are going to be looking at a well-told story, the familiar story of Noah and the ark. And some of you are going to say, well, I, I know that story, and many of us do, but we're going to approach it a little differently this morning. Growing up, uh, I spent a lot of my time in north-central Iowa, a little town called Eagle Grove. Uh, my mom is from that town. Our family farm was just south of Clarion, between Clarion and Eagle Grove. And uh, we just spent a lot of time up there as kids. Uh, my brother and I uh, really kind of thought of that as our second home, really enjoyed it. Uh, my grandfather was a very gentle man. He grew up in Wolfstock, Iowa, part of the French community. His last name was Coquelin, C-A-Q-U-L-I-N. It's the first thing that my mom had us learn to spell. Uh, and he loved to tell us stories about the French people that lived up there. Uh, some of them were crazy, some of them were just hilarious. But one thing we learned about our grandfather really quickly was that this man had a 
Well, I guess on one hand, you could call it a profound respect for the weather. On the other hand, you could say that he was a paranoid nut. And it's up to you how you look at that. But uh, you know, their, ho their house was an old kind of farmhouse, and it didn't have air conditioning or anything like that. We would uh, spend a lot of our summer evenings, we'd go up there in August for the uh, Wright County Fair, which was always fun. But at night, it would just get so hot. You know, those of you who are old enough to remember pre-air conditioning days, uh, you know what I'm talking about. The cool side of the pillow type thing, uh, sweat coming off of you. Uh, there were many an evening where we would sit out on their porch and uh, just wait for a breeze to catch us and hope to cool down. But the most interesting nights is when we heard on the radio that there was a tornado watch, uh, severe thunderstorms were in the area, and uh, we'd be sitting out there, and my grandpa and my grandma would be sitting in their big chairs telling us stories. And then all of a sudden, you'd see that ominous flash of light on the horizon. And you could make out the outline of the buildings. And you knew something was coming. Immediately, my grandfather's demeanor would change. He'd get very tense, very just almost, you know, scared. And all of a sudden, the stories would stop, and he would get up, and he'd walk out on the porch and off to the front steps, and he'd just scan that horizon, looking to see what might be coming. As we grew up, we knew better than to bring up the idea of storms with grandfather. Uh, one night, we were sitting out there, and it was a beautiful night, and my Aunt Maud, who was staying with my grandpa and grandma, came out. And she says, Woo, Raymond, you ought to look out the back window. You ought to see those clouds. And everybody's like, Maud, what are you doing? And of course, he was up out of his chair. And the other nights, he woke us up and said, Get your shoes, come on downstairs. You can lay on the couch on the porch, but we're going to be ready in case, case that tornado came. He was just an old farmer who had uh, farmed throughout the Depression era, and he had a healthy respect for storms, which kind of got passed on to the rest of us. When you grow up like that, you just get used to looking at the weather. My uncle, uh, Dick, his son, and his wife, Donna, came down to visit Iona and I when we were in Dallas, Texas. We were uh, just newly married, and they were bringing my mom with them. And they came down, and they said, hey, we want to bless you. We're going to take you out for pizza tonight. So we drove up to Plano, Texas, which was on the north side of Dallas. And we were ordering big pizzas, and we were going to eat like kings, and it was great. And we sat down at the tables, and Dick's back was to the windows, and we just got our pizza served. And Ione, new to the family, says, wow, look at those clouds. <laughs> you know, everybody just daggered looked at Ione, like, what are you thinking? And Dick turned around, looked at him, and we left. Pizza stayed on the table. There was no getting them, boxing them, nothing. We were in his Cadillac. We're driving back to our apart to our second-story, 15-foot square apartment. <laughs> you know, and we're up. And the whole time he's in our apartment, he's pacing back and forth, and he goes, "Why do you live in this Cracker Jack box? I don't get it. What's going on out here? You know, and all this kind of stuff." And totally unlike him in his normal day. Well, if there's anything I learned from this man and for the, these men is to keep an eye on the weather. Not that you can do a whole lot about it, but keep your eye on the weather because you never know what's just popping up over that horizon. Well, that wasn't known in the days of Noah. 
In the days of Noah, people weren't used to bad weather. They weren't used to rain. They weren't used to tornadoes and thunderstorms and hurricanes and so forth. They didn't know enough to look at the horizon. To them, just another day in near paradise, right? Well, we're going to look at this story a little differently this morning. I like it once in a while when I watch a TV show, and they start at the end of the story, and they work their way backwards. Kind of just adds a little to the story. Well, that's what we're going to do today. So Genesis chapter 9. We're going to start off our story this morning by looking at what I'm calling the landing. Uh, now, this is what we typically teach in family ministries. When your kids come to Sunday school, they're getting the Noah story, right? You've seen it. There's a picture of an ark. It's usually about 80,000 times too small to carry all of the critters that have supposedly been crammed onto this ark. And there's usually a couple, for sure one, giant giraffe neck sticking out. There's Noah with a piece of cotton on his chin. This is the old man. Uh, there are maybe a lion with yarn for a mane uh, looking at you. Everybody has big smiles. Never thought of lions eating those giraffes or attacking Noah. It's just they're all happy, right? And the boat lands on Mount Ararat. The door flips open, and everybody trundles out. And that's the sum total that we usually teach our children about this particular section of Genesis. But in so doing, we are trying to protect them a little bit of the, from the reality of this story, but also we're kind of giving them and ourselves a misunderstanding of what's really happening in this text. So when they land, we, we're familiar with this. The, the landing is going on and is telling us the water has receded that's covered the earth. Uh, people are allowed to go out. Remember, Noah had sent a couple of test subjects out. First, he had sent a raven out. The raven came back. You know, eventually, he sends a dove out. Dove doesn't come back. And it says, Noah knows that the waters had receded and the time has come for them to leave the ark. They've been on there for nearly a year, or over a year. And they're ready to get out. And as they're coming out, we know that things are going to be different. And as you read this in chapter 9, you see that God is going to do something a little differently than those had been the rules before. First of all, we see in verse 3, the fear, excuse me, verse 2, the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea, if you ever wondered if you're a fisherman why you can't catch anything, it's right here. Into your hand they are delivered, right? So the word for fear is the word for terror in the Hebrew. This is a strong, emphatic word, and it's repeated twice, all right? Every fear of you, the dread of you, is going to be on these animals. And since God is saying this, this must be different, right, than the way it was before the flood. We're not sure exactly, we can't say particularly, this is the way things have been, but we're guessing it's shy of being sort of a Narnia landscape with animals talking and interacting with one another, but certainly there seems to have been a harmony between men and beasts. It was the way that God created it. It was good. And now the rules are changing. You kind of get from this verse the idea that as soon as those arc doors are open, those animals are zooming. They're getting out of there. 
They want as far away from Noah and his family as they can get. They have a fear of them. Uh, some people, commentators, will make a point of, well, it doesn't speak about livestock. It's not saying that cows are going to be afraid of us. Uh, and that's a possibility. Uh, that, that's why they're domesticated. That's why we can use them the way that we do. But everything else has a fear of us. The other thing that he is told is that you need to do what? What's the Noahic commandment or covenant telling Noah and his family? It says it three times, the end of chapter 8 and a couple times in 9. Go out, be fruitful, and multiply. Go out, be fruitful, and multiply. God, I think, is going to increase the ability of these people, Noah, his three sons, and their three wives. Noah didn't have his sons, according to a previous chapter, until he was 500 years old. And then he had his three boys. Uh, he's telling those sons, go out and have more children. And they do. This is a chance for the world to start over again. We just kind of erase the board and we're going to start from scratch and you're going to have new rules. Another thing that happens here is that they're allowed to what to the animals? Yeah. They can chilies them. They can bandanas them. They can do the backyard barbecue if they can catch them. They can eat them, right? Probably up to this point, animals had been eaten, but probably in direct disobedience to what God had set. Probably God had set it up so that animals and, and humans were in some sort of harmonious relationship. But at this point, God says, you know what, Noah? You can have hamburger. You can have a steak. You can have pork chops. Well, not pork chops. He'll reserve that one for a little later. But he can have the rest of it, right? Right. So there's just all kinds of new rules. We're not given a lot of details as to how life proceeded at this point. Uh, if you take the belief that the ark came to rest in uh, northern Anatolia, up in uh, Turkey, that it's on Mount Ararat, uh, we know that as they got off from there, the landscape was probably very different than what it looked like before they went in. Uh, the climate was different. Everything was different. That's the landing. We know the story. Now let's take a step back. And we're going to look at the second part, which is how they got there. What happened? And I'm going to call this second section the judgment. This is the judgment. Life had ended as they had known it. Uh, God is upset with them. If you go back to chapter 7 of this book. Uh, God is putting them all into the ark. Uh, he, he says that, Noah, you are righteous before me in this generation. You can take seven uh, pairs of clean animals and so forth, and he gives them all the specific instructions. And then it happens. It says the first thing that happens is that the deeps burst forth. It just explodes. If we look at Psalm 104, we're given a little bit of insight into what happened there because in Psalm 104, the psalmist writes that the mountains were thrust up, the valleys were sunk down. Uh, some come to believe that before this time, there were no such things as mountains and so forth. But definitely the topography, no matter how you look at that section, is changing dramatically. And it's not just that it rains. A lot has been made, the fact that people of Noah's day uh, and preceding him had never seen rain. They were not in fear of rain. They had not been in a flood. And that's possible. But what we do know is that really the, the, the big news here 
is that the continents are shifting. The land masses are turning. And everything that once gave them comfort on a beautiful, sunny, green morning is now turned into a thing of terror. It's like the worst disaster movie you have ever seen. You know, back in the 70s, there were a whole series of disasters of movies like Poseidon Adventure, uh, Earthquake, so forth. And everything seemed to be falling apart. They loved to show big interstates falling in and tall skyscrapers toppling over. Well, they didn't have those things back then, but their world changed immediately. In this judgment, rain comes down for 40 days. The deeps burst forth. Huge volcanoes are thrusting up and they're exploding water, releasing water. Some believe that there was a canopy of moisture that went around the world uh, that was then released, and it not just rained, but it came down. Now, in Texas, we would call that a holy gully. Uh, there was one night when Iona and I were living in Dallas when it started pouring rain so much that we didn't know what to do, and then the tornado sirens went off. And so we left our little Cracker Jack apartment, went down the stairs outside, and uh, the only place that we could hide was there was a corner of a rock wall that was about two and a half feet tall in the landscaping, and we could just hide in there. Unfortunately, the water was filling that rock area pretty much. You know, it was getting higher and higher, and we didn't really know what we were going to do. Thankfully, it kind of led up off of there. There were many days when I drove for my uh, company where the water came down so hard, uh, it filled these outdoor gutters. Uh, you know, we have sewer systems in the Midwest. Down south, they just have big gutters in the sides of the road. There's no covering to them or whatsoever, and they have flash floods. It just comes down like torrents. Uh, little kids, seriously, have been taken down those gutters, and their lives have ended. It's a scary thing. Well, it was nothing that I experienced like what happens in Noah's day. It's just exploding. It's raining. It's coming down. And what we hear in the word of God is that God himself shuts Noah and his family into this ark. And by the way, I, I don't know if any of you had a chance to see it. If you went to the children's play last night at Central Campus, you might have seen it. But there is a recreation of the ark. Some of you might have gone to Kentucky and seen the, the ark that is actually to scale. That's pretty cool. But God shuts them into this boat and everyone else is left out. Uh, we don't spend a lot of time thinking about that when we teach on this particular part, portion of scripture. It's kind of scary. <coughs> the water rose 20 cubits, it says, above the tallest mountain. You know, today, you know, we'd have to be in the Himalayas and we would see that the water, there was no chance. 20 cubits, no man could reach that high. You couldn't float that long. There isn't any other structures you could get on that would survive, not just the rising of the water, but the torrential power that that water had. And it says that every beast was killed. Anything that drew breath died. The birds in the air, the animals on the land, right? Fish in the sea, there was nothing left. It was God's judgment upon a world that had gone disobedient. All that was left was Noah, his wife, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, their wives, and that was it. And they stayed that way for a year on that ark. All that God created was destroyed. 
I'm going to turn real quick while we're talking about judgment to another passage uh, <clears throat> that we should always look at when we're talking about Noah. And that's in Matthew 24. It's called the Olivet Discourse simply because Christ was at the Mount of Olives when he's teaching this. But in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus is telling his followers, this is what you can expect to happen the next time I come back. So the first time he came, what's the celebration? We're coming up to it real quick. Elbow the guy next to you to wake him up. What? Yeah, that's right. So this is what's happening. Jesus came once. He was born in Bethlehem. Uh, he lived his life. At the end of some 33 years, he's killed on the cross. He dies. End of story, right? That's why we come together. We sing. We have uh, sharing times. We take up offerings. No, that's not the end of the story. The end of the story is still yet to be seen. It's not here yet. And that's what Jesus is talking about is the second coming in the Olivet Discourse. In it, if you take the time and start reading through it, it is horrific. It's just like Noah's Ark. You don't want to get too far into it. But it is going to come with judgment. It's going to come with destruction. And really, when we think about it, what we're going to see is the entire book of Revelation, if we had time this morning, is kind of a fleshing out of what he's saying in Matthew 24. There's going to be seven trumpets that give way to, or excuse me, seven seals that give away to seven trumpets, that give their way to seven bowls. And each of those seals, and each of those trumpets, and each of those bowls is going to unleash a new judgment upon the world. And it's God's way of saying that justice is going to be done. I'm bringing it this time. Part of the reason that Jesus wasn't received so well when he came the first time is because people expected him to come somewhat with the attitude and the actions that are described here in Matthew 24. They didn't understand that. But Jesus is saying the time is coming when I will return. And when I return, there will be judgment. Now, for our purposes, we want to drop down in Matthew 24, and we're going to read in verse 38. And he says, For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away so will be the coming of the Son of Man. So we got a couple things to look at here. So it says, as we're in the days of Noah, so he's historically locating what he's talking about, the same scenario, the same situation. It's going to be just like it was back then. Every person that was listening to Jesus, who was part of the Jewish nation, and that's what they primarily were, understood immediately <coughs> what he was saying. As in the days of Noah, the coming of the Son of Man. The Son of Man comes with power. That Son of Man phrase is one of those most powerful descriptors of Christ in the Bible. Uh, it's used in the book of Daniel. And the Son of Man is coming in judgment. No one wants to see the Son of Man come who is not in relationship with him. And he says, how is it going to be? Well, just like in the days of Noah people will be totally unaware. They're going to be obtuse to the signs. 
you know, you would think, well, if I lived in the days of Noah and I see this weird little man out there and he is building this giant structure out of wood, I mean, it is huge. It's, it's like bigger than anything they probably had ever seen before. Aren't I going to go and ask him, what's the deal, Noah? What's happening? Maybe they did. But Noah is going to proclaim to them the reasons why he's building. God told me to. Jehovah, the creator, the one that put us here, has said, build this ark. Judgment is coming upon all of us. Uh, if we look in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, we are told that Noah was the herald of righteousness. Uh, 2 Peter 2 is a list of judgments that God has visited upon people. His second one is the ark and the flood. And he says, Noah, that herald, that speaker, that proclaimer of righteousness. So he must have been telling his neighbors, this is coming. This is coming. This is reality. I'm not just building this to open up my own hotel. This is going to be a place of refuge. I don't know if an offer was made for people to uh, turn their lives around, to submit to God, to have a birth on this boat. We're not told that. But what we do know is that they ignored him. By and large, they ignored him. And the reason we know that is because Jesus himself says, just as in the days of Noah, people were eating and drinking and marrying and given in marriage. In other words, they just lived their life. They could care less what that crazy old man was saying. And then the real condemning statement there, after that, he says, until the day when Noah entered the ark and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. Bye, Noah. See you later. See you, Mrs. Noah. Shem, you're going with them? You're going to follow your crazy dad? Okay, well, have fun. You know, they all went on the ark. And it says they were unaware, still unaware. Now, I have to give them a little bit of grace here. Hadn't seen rain, hadn't seen a flood, probably didn't know what a boat did. Uh, the ark doesn't really lift off the ground till the waters get tall enough to lift that much weight up. But you might start thinking there's a little something going on here when you start seeing animals of all kinds, two by two, going into this boat. When you see those boys loading on grain, hay, straw, whatever they needed to feed these animals, right? Uh, there's, this is strange. And the animals aren't fighting with one another. They're not in, in disharmony. And maybe that's the way it always was in those days. We just don't know. But every kind of animal was going on to this boat. And yet, people chose not to pay any attention. Now, where could you build an ark this size in a civilization? What, what if we built one right out here in the parking lot? Do you think people would have to notice? What if we built it over here in the park? Would people take notice of what was happening? Where would you build it to get the most attention? I don't think God put this ark in some remote place. I don't think Noah owned 80 acres and he had a great forested wooded area and he hid this boat in there. It says they observed it. They saw it. 
They just didn't pay attention. Where would we build an ark? Where would we have the space? Would the, the government officials stop him? Uh, sorry, sir, uh, we don't build boats in town. Uh, are those cage-free chickens going on the boat? I mean, somebody would stick their nose into it somewhere, right? We would just don't know what to do with that. But Jesus said, when I come back, when I come back, and it says in the book of Revelation, one foot is going to be in Judea, one foot in the Mediterranean, and this God, this lamb that was slain, is going to bring judgment on the world. And just as in Noah's day, they're not going to know it's coming. What? Now we've talked about it. Oh, how many sermons have been preached on this topic? How many Bible studies have been given? How many times have Christians given public testimony to this? I mean, I can pretty much tune in to football any Sunday afternoon, and if there's an after-game interview, it's surely there's at least one guy that's going to say thanks to Jesus for this. But people don't make that connection. You see, in judgment, the days of Noah are just the prelude to what's really coming when Jesus himself returns. He's also, according to the Olivet Discourse, there's several illustrations that are happening. It's going to be like the, the, the virgins who have the lamps, and they're supposed to be on waiting for the bridegroom to arrive, and they have to have sufficient oil in those lamps, or they just might miss them. And of course, as you know the story, they do miss them because they were not adequately prepared, right? He's like the thief in the night who comes into your house and he robs it, and you didn't know he was coming. Jesus is trying to communicate the best way that he can is that he is coming. And just because you don't see any signs of it, just because the world around us seems to be blind to all of the signs, the truth is, he is coming. That's the judgment. People have died. The water has filled their nostrils. They're floating. I have no idea what happened to all the bodies when the water receded. We don't know how many people were actually alive on this planet at that point. But the world changed, and it changed forever. Part of this judgment also comes with a promise, right? There's going to be a rainbow as God's covenant sign that he will know never again uh, cover the world with water and destroy it. But that doesn't mean that judgment isn't coming. It just means that we're not going to have as big a flood, you know. Uh, third thing that we want to look at, taking another step backwards, is the reason for judgment. And if we go back to Genesis, there's a couple of things that God outlines for us that really have upset him. And there's two in particular that I'm going to focus on. He says, first of all, all of the world was corrupt. Now, you remember the last time we really saw God make a significant impact on creation, he had pronounced everything to be good. And then the fall came. The woman, listening to the guile of the serpent, decided to disobey God. She talked her husband into joining her in her disobedience, and the two of them were judged by the Lord. And it's at that moment that we see families are broken. Cain kills his brother, right? Lamech decides that he's going to kill anybody twice over 
just to get vengeance. It seems like the code of God has been set aside, and that's just the start. And we're on a downhill precipice, skiing for a valley that nobody wants to get to, but the world is falling apart. It says the world is corrupt. The word there, corruption, is one of saying flesh that has gone rotten, mortification, putrid, nothing is good. And the second thing that God says besides that is that violence has filled the world. Violence has filled the world. We can only assume from this that men are killing men. People are killing one another, or at least severely hurting one another. And God can't take it anymore. He decides that this is going to be the end. He's going to get rid of them and start over again. Let me ask you, where do you think we are today? If the second coming of Christ is coming and God is judging in Noah's day because of corruption and violence, how do we stand on those scales? Judgment is coming. Everything that God had created was corrupted. There was violence everywhere, and they ultimately rejected their creator. They rejected their creator. Now, we don't like to hear about this. We don't want to be judged, do we? I don't want to be judged. It's not a pleasant thing to be judged. In fact, we can get quite angry when people point fingers at us. We don't like it whether it's the government, whether it's our spouse, whether it's our neighbor. Just being judged is hard. And Westerners, of all people, we really hate it. Um, Sam Harris, a renowned Stanford neuroscientist who is one of the most prominent atheists on the speaking circuit today, uh, wrote in his book, Free Will, a way to get around judgment, right? We get around judgment because he says, and he goes first through this horrific crime that a man does to a family, that's a true story, the things that this man does to the children, to the husband, to the wife, it's just, it's hard to read. And he says, hold on, no judgment. You see, the man had no choice. As a neuroscientist, he says that we are born with a certain set of indices in our brain that uh, don't give us a choice. We have to act that way. And maybe our environment builds into that, the way that we're raised, and we can't be held accountable for what we do. It's not that we chose to do something morally wrong, it's we just can't do anything other than what we are pre-programmed to do. His scientific determinism says that we get a pass. Now, if you're like me, there's some parts of that you're like, yeah. <laughs> Next time my own gets mad at me, hey, not my fault. <laughs> my brain is pre-programmed that way, what little is there is, right? I don't think she's gonna buy that, but you know, we can, we can let that sail, all right? But then comes along another movement in our society called the Me Too movement. And the Me Too movement for the last few years has done a great job of bringing out the fact that women are being uh, sexually exploited, abused, and they're saying enough is enough. We gotta stop that, right? I think we'd all agree, that's a great thing. They've called out every prominent person, whether they're in Hollywood, media, government, you're, you're not safe from that. If you have something in your background, even 10, 20, 30 years ago, you're gonna be held accountable. Whoa, 
We just got done saying that Sam Harris says that nobody is doing anything morally wrong. And now Me Too is saying, wait a minute, you are morally wrong. You didn't have to do what you did to that poor woman. And now we as a society are going to hold you accountable. You're going to not be able to get a job. You're going to be fined and possibly even go to prison. How do we balance that in our society? Seems somewhat hypocritical, doesn't it? Scientific determinism, me too. What do we do with that? We don't like to be judged, but yet inside of each of us, there is that hope that there's a moral thread in the universe. Something that will tell us this is right, this is wrong. And when I feel that something unjust has happened to me, I want there to be justice. And at that moment, we kind of punt. We kick away any of our maybe cognitive processes that say, well, you know, Sam Harris may be right. We're not sure. But we don't want to be judged. But here's the problem. The Bible says we are judged. The Bible says that God is going to do it. I brought up here with me today a cup. Because when you turn to Luke chapter 22, and I'm ending with this, when you turn to Luke chapter 22... We find the story of Jesus going to the Garden of Gethsemane on the night that he was betrayed, right? He's taken some of his inner circle. He's asked them to pray with him. He knows what's coming, the arrest, the humiliation, the crucifixion, the pain of it. And what's his prayer? Father, let this cup pass from me. Now, all people in Luke's day, as Luke's writing his gospel, they all know what he means by the cup. It's used so many times in the Old Testament. The cup is the wrath of God. And we sometimes get this confused. We think when we read about, let this cup pass from me, that Jesus might be thinking of the pain of crucifixion. Those spikes going into his wrists, into his, his ankles, the whip marks, the spear into his side, the crown of thorns pressed harshly upon his head. Oh, man, I'd be the first one chickening out, right? Let this cup pass from me, Father. But we're missing the point. The real plea, the real prayer in Jesus' request is not a fear of death. It's a fear of what's in this cup. You see, what's in this cup of wrath is your sins and my sins jammed in here. And we have done what the people of Noah's day did. We have ignored him, we've rejected him, and we've lived our lives the way that we want to live them. And God says, no, I have a standard, I have an ethic, I have commandments, I have love, and I've asked you to live in recognition that I am your God, I'm your creator, your sustainer, your protector, your provider, and you've rejected me. And all of human history's sins are in this cup. And Jesus finally recognizes that for him to drink from this cup means that now he is going to face separation from his father because God has to judge sin. And if Jesus partakes of your sin and my sin, even though he is a sinless, perfect human being, he is going to face from God what we ourselves should face from God. Jesus took that cup 
right? We know the story that happened on the next three days. And he drank it. Willingly. In love. For you and me. So that we could have freedom from the wrath of God. Now that doesn't mean that judgment of Matthew 24 isn't coming. That doesn't mean that the seals, trumpets, and bowls in the book of Revelation aren't going to be sprung on us. It just means that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ today and you've hidden your life in him, Jesus drunk that cup of wrath for you. You haven't done anything tremendous. You haven't done anything great. You're just taking an offer of a free gift. Wow. How can you do that? Sometimes we see two gods in the Bible. We see that Old Testament God of wrath, and then we see in the New Testament Jesus, the nice guy, the teacher, the lamb that was slain. But by the time you get to the end of Scripture, you see the lamb come forward to break open that seal. They're saying, who is worthy to do this? Who is righteous enough to open up the judgment upon the world? And we all can't be there because we're sinners. We haven't lived our lives in a way that would make us right to open that seal. But then from the back of the crowd, murmuring begins. And that lamb, it says, comes forward with the holes in his hands and the holes in his ankles. And he breaks that seal open. And the judgment is coming. I'll leave you this, with this word. Watch the weather. Look to the horizon. For as in Noah's day, those people were caught off guard. We can't be caught off guard. If you're part of God's family today, you make sure that you're out telling your neighbors, those people you work with, play with, that you live with, people in your family, what's coming. Help them have that opportunity to be saved from this wrath. And if you're not in God's family this morning, and you want to make sure that you're not going to face that, you want to take advantage of the fact that Jesus drank that cup of wrath for you? And come up and talk to me afterwards, or Doug, or any of us. We would love to help you to find that relationship with him, right? All right, thanks for being patient this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your love and for your grace. I just ask, Lord, that you would bless us as we study your word. We thank you for Noah and his ark. But, Lord, we know that that is just a testimony, a picture of what's to come. Father, may we be sober in the way that we live. May we have a sense of urgency as we watch the horizon. Father, we expect you. You can come at any moment with your son, and it's going to be a time of tremendous judgment. The word says that the people will cry out for the mountains to fall upon them rather than to face the Son of God. Father, may we do the job that we have to do. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, the scripture calls us um, as a church corporately to regularly